0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to an extra spooky vampy edition of the Cannonball, especially for Agora Podcast Network special Agoraphobia series, uh, which we do every Halloween season. And I, I have to imagine that the uh, the folks who named the network uh, had this particular joke name in mind when they named it such, because it just it fits perfectly, right? It's, it's a great joke. But anyway, uh, my name is Daniel Doughty. I'm here with, uh, as always, with my esteemed interlocutor, uh maven of all things literary dr claude myron goozer we are typically the hosts of uh, the cannonball um but now we are going to do a special just a special little episode we're still going to wrap with you about literature about uh you know writing and culture um but you know it's it's halloween time it's a little bit spooky and claude i have something i've been very curious about and let me explain <laughs> why um so, for anyone who listens to the show, uh, you probably know by now that I am a bit of a, a a bit of an unreconstructed record store guy. I was one of those uh, back when there was such a thing as record stores. I just ate, dated myself severely, um, but I would spend my my meager blockbuster paycheck at the CD store every week. I would talk to the guys. I was I'm, I'm heavy into music. I love it, um, especially in the kind of uh, I guess what you might turn the indie rock. It was the 90s when I first got into this stuff. And so anything looking back and sort of, you know, teasing out where that all came from, I I love it. I dig into it. Um, So one of my favorite things to do is to sort of go back. And uh, YouTube has been a real godsend that there is such a massive treasure trove of old albums you could never find. People just uploaded live footage of bands and stuff. So it's a really fun way to sort of dig in and look into all those bands that you might have heard of once while talking to the record store guy who you knew thought he was too cool for you. But he still, like, gave you the time of day, I guess, to go back and sort of, like, you know, educate yourself all over again. And one of my big blind spots in all this uh, has been goth rock, sort of the goth genre <laughs> of music. And I found myself sort of getting into it ass backwards because I've long been a big fan of the post-punk sort of uh, aesthetic and era. The You know, that, that's a term that means a lot of things, but it was originally sort of was biographical. These were the bands of music that people who had come up in the punk explosion of this 1977-78 got into after they got tired of the whole punk thing. Um, and so I have really get into a lot of like what you might call spooky post punk. You're kind of the, the that in the joy division vein, <laughs> the kind that's all atmosphere and sort of jagged guitars and stuff. And I realized also that I was veering into goth rock. I was started getting, you I mean, on the on the recommendations, I started getting Bauhaus recommendations. And I started getting curious. This is a long winded way of saying how in the world did a term which originally applied to Romanized Germanic military families come to be applied to a kind of music associated with teased up hair and, and, you know, and, and, and zombie makeup and like you know, white chalky makeup and sort of vamping around on stage where how where how are the links forged how is the chain forged and i realized i'm gonna have to go to claude because being an expert in all things literary and cultural he could tell me the answer so claude what is the origin of the gothic aesthetic
1: Okay. Um, th- this is going to be a little bit convoluted because uh, <laughs> it- it's funny that you're coming to this uh, sort of late in life. I-, I came to it very, very early in life. Uh, I-, I was there not exactly at the beginning, but I guess as much of the beginning as you could be in a small southern town. Um, before the whole goth thing had really sort of reified into a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I I was sort of, I guess, proto-Goth I was definitely into the industrial stuff Mm -hmm. um, That sort of edge of metal But Skinny Puppy was my favorite band Uh, Always sort of drawn to the darker side And I I can't exactly trace the etymology of Goth Or at least I can't do so right now Give me another six weeks and I probably could (laughs) Right but, um but i can tell you a little bit about the background of how how the the literary terms developed how they've developed over time how they've shifted how they've changed it what they've signif- how they've changed it no how they've changed what they've signified um sort of how they signified and give you some examples of what the genre means. Now, this is really sort of a 101. Anyone looking for uh, more depth, I email us. I can tell you some other places to go. But for the sake of the this agoraphobia episode, I think this really has to be sort of like the surface level stuff that we can bring to... Mm-hmm. I guess at least the 80s or the 90s, maybe even to now, but yeah. to think about the, the sort of darker aspects of literature of cultural production. And how they manifest themselves, and why they manifest themselves. Yeah. All right. So to to sort of start off, um, we we typically think of gothic and gothicism as the the dark, spooky shit. Right. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, I'm being glib, and it's also late at night, and I'm tired. But um, the, that's kind of what it comes down to. We think of it as being atmospheric darkly atmospheric and in some ways connected to the supernatural and that's kind of it that has Mm -hmm. something to do with the original source but uh the gothic and i'm thinking here particularly of the gothic novel it really is an enlightenment phenomenon so the gothic for all of its spooky affect, and uncanny weirdness is really rooted in the Enlightenment, the the presumed age of the rational, where empirical reasoning and a scientific worldview were rapidly dispensing with superstition. And an asterisk goes here because uh, much recent thinking has worked to critique the underlying Western chauvinism and the claims for an Enlightenment epistemology, as well as the claims for universal objectivism. Um, you know, we now, <laughs> I, I think, are, are comfortably... Aware of the ways that the Enlightenment was a much more complicated phenomenon, yeah, and how the epistemology of the Enlightenment was also an epistemology involved in the development of the tropes of racism and other certain kinds of shifts in superstition. Let's call them that, yeah, right. But um, be that as it may, the the sort of presumed Enlightenment rational worldview was one where reason and empirical observation would dispel beliefs in the supernatural or the the superstition right right, right. so early gothic literature in english and okay i'm going to delve into french at certain points here um d- like just skim the surface of it yeah. right but for the most part, we're talking about English literature here. So early Gothic literature in English actually espoused an Enlightenment ideology. So Horace Walpole's uh, Castle of Otranto, published in 1764, really sort of exemplifies this. Castle of Otranto is pretty much Scooby-Doo. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> right. It yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But with much more elegant syntax, and it lacks a talking dog. Okay. So so far, two strikes against it, but go on. (laughs) Right. So the story is a presumed translation of a medieval Italian text that tells the convoluted tale of an aristocrat divorcing his wife to marry the fiancé of his recently dead son, thereby forcing the fiancé to flee through a crumbling castle overrun with secret stairways and atmosphere and curses. Um, that's pretty much it. There's lots of spooky doings, even a ghostly animated suit of armor. But at the end of the day, it wasn't an actual spook that was doing the spooking. It was just people doing horrible things because motivated by fear of a curse. Uh huh. Um, yeah. I mean, it's 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 straight from the Scooby Doo opening where there's that haunted armor walking right. around, blowing in the dark because somebody painted it with phosphorus. And I think paint.
0: it's interesting that it's not even a matter of there's nothing supernatural happening, but it's. everything is fully explicable, but it is motivated by fear of the supernatural
1: yeah Yeah. that's it that's it and so there there are a couple of important points here uh first is the time of the tale uh the 18th century english presumption is that this kind of story is more believable if it occurred in the middle ages because that time would be much more likely to be quote unquote superstitious right now you and i have sort of been through this (laughs) i I really think uh the turning point for us please listen to our podcast but the turning point for us was really sort of don quixote where we delved into the background of what counts as medieval what is and is not medieval who is medieval um why is this so-called middle ages considered a dark backwards Um, it it is from the viewpoint of the Renaissance, which wants to establish itself in opposition to that time period. Right. But, you know, to, to call the period from, let's say roughly a thousand to 1400 as this kind of superstitious backwater ignores the complicated thinking and reasoning of that time period.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, We're, we're really the, uh, Anyone just absorbing anything through just sort of osmosis absorbs that kind of renaissance slash uh, enlightenment um, kind of. You know how when you're like eight or nine years old and you make a really big deal out of hating Barney because you're over that baby stuff? That's exactly what that was. (laughs) Yeah,
1: it it, it kind of is because you just – it's in the air. It's assumed. It's an assumed point of view and you assume everybody has it. Yeah. Uh, so it's it, it the I think as we've explored as many other actual thinkers and scholars you're an actual thinker and scholar I'm an idiot have <laughs> explored uh, the the middle ages aren't exactly this like grim dark you know time period no. uh it, it's not without its horrors as every time is but okay you get the idea. Right. <laughs> so it, the the 18th century casting of these texts in the Middle Ages is on purpose. It's like okay, that's a time period in which people actually believed in this stuff. So okay, let's put it back there. But the place matters too. All right. So not only is the setting medieval, but it's also Italian, and therefore the predominant Christian denomination is Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And Catholicism was Enlightenment shorthand for corrupt backwardsness, right? Uh, especially in England where you you have this sort of tradition of displacing your your cultural anxieties on the southern Catholic nations. Uh, You can look at the 17th century revenge tragedies, which are going to come back into play as – part of this phenomenon, and they're, they're kind of proto-Gothic in their outlook. Uh, allow me to digress. Yeah, yeah. Um, The 17th century revenge tragedy, it always takes place in either Spain or Italy because those are your Catholic countries, and we're talking about Elizabethan England where Catholicism is outlawed. Um, there's always some corrupt aristocrat who has done something horrible. There's a revenger who either goes insane or has to pretend to insanity in order to ingratiate himself into the aristocratic court. I don't know how insanity uh, ingratiates you into the aristocratic court, but be that as it may. (laughs) It's um, Uh, an opportunity uh, for an oblige, I suppose. (laughs) Right, I suppose. So uh, the revenger (laughs) pretends crazy and then gets in there and slaughters. Everyone. Uh, So you get all kinds of lurid, creepy, grotesque sexuality Mm. as well as lurid, creepy, grotesque uh, forms of violence. Um, If you're looking for a a great riff on the revenge tragedy, Pinchon's Crying of Lot 49 writes a revenge tragedy into the middle of it. Yeah. That is so over the top, it actually kind of gets it. Yeah. Um, my favorite <laughs> revenge tragedy is, uh, Ford's Tis Pity She's a Whore. Uh, just for the title alone but it's a revenge tragedy which (laughs) uh the of course it takes place in a southern catholic state and uh at the beginning of the play this young nobleman is obsessed over uh the potential for an incestuous relationship with his sister uh he thinks he's found a loophole in canon law to allow it um at the end of the first act, he confronts her and says, Hey, check this out. I think we can actually sleep together. Here's my reasoning. She says, Cool, and they go into his bedroom. That's the end of the first act. Uh-huh, yeah. Okay, so that's – long story short, there's this long English uh, tradition of kind of like othering the the medieval Catholic states or the Renaissance Catholic states. But the, the Enlightenment really sort of took it forward with the Gothic novel. All right, so um, – that's that's kind of what's going on with Castle of Otranto and Radcliffe's 1794 novel The Mysteries of Udolpho works similarly. Mm-hmm. A heroine is set to inherit an estate in France, another Catholic country. She's taken to a gloomy, crumbling castle in Italy by a nefarious uncle, taken from France to Italy, and set upon with tons of creepy little contrivances to coerce her into giving up her estate. At the end of the day, it wasn't a ghost. It was her creepy uncle who just wanted the land. Um, Mysteries of Udolpho and Castle of Otranto, they they have this reveal moment where – you know, they pull the rubber mask off. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, it's not a r- rubber mask. It's a knight's helmet and, you know, it's this other thing. But there's this reveal. right? Okay? So, again, there's an emphasis on the supernatural happening elsewhere. And our shrewd heroine, Emily Aubert is intelligent enough eventually to see through the spookiness and unmask the real villain at the end. And both of these Enlightenment or Enlightenment-adjacent novels really rely on the idea that the affect of superstition is a lot of fun, Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, reason needs to master the situation and illustrate that there's no actual supernatural influence, just some really bad people.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think what was pretty interesting, that description of the, uh, the Adolfo, one is that it almost sounds like the uh, the play Gaslight, from which we get the yeah. widely known term, where the whole the whole point of that is that this you know uh, a woman is is uh, well, it's just kind of you know it's not quite the same, but rather that there's you know mysterious goings on happening, and it's because of the malfeasance of a man trying to take advantage of a woman and and, and break her mental state, basically.
1: Yeah. Well, that was. Um That was also sort of – well, kind of in a convoluted opposite way. Wilkie Collins' Woman in White. Yeah. Uh, Woman in White is about this – basically a long con to disinherit this woman and steal her estate. And there's this kind of detective figure who – Figures it out and thwarts this nefarious nihilistic Italian count. Hey, it's always Italian. <laughs> uh, yeah, you get. The, uh, um, apologies to any like, Italian listeners out there. We promise we were just conveying the sentiments of English people from a couple centuries. Well, ago. no, I mean it really does seem like there's this long-standing English tradition of othering. Italy, but yeah, anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. So he he sort of figures this out and towards this, it's like a Sherlock Holmes novel or, or a Sherlock Holmes story, except it's completely domesticated, or it, it's completely about um, the situation whose import really only matters to this one particular family, it's less about, you know, oh, these are matters of state secrets which is how a lot of Holmes stuff kind of goes after a while. Yeah. B- uh, because Conan Doyle had to turn Holmes into this kind of national superhero in this way. and uh, But it's it's much more centered on um, just this particular horrible thing that's happening. It's sort of like Blue Velvet, right, when you think about it. Yeah, yeah. Planet, What is Frank trying to do? He's basically kidnapped this woman's husband and son in order to force her into a sexual. into this coerced sexual situation, which is horrifying because. I mean, it's sort of like this isn't about a large scale plot to do X, Y, or Z. This is about. Just traumatizing someone. Yeah, yeah, just tormenting you know? somebody. Yeah. Um yeah, it's it's sadism, you know, to a sense of degree. Anyway, yeah. I, I digress. Yeah, yeah. So
0: uh, one thing the, so you so the, the Gothic sort of has its origin in these enlightenment ideas about uh the triumph of rationality, right? About the yeah. the ripping away of the mask. But of course that's also coming on the heels of the romantic movement. And I think what mm-hmm. most people would really associate the Gothic aesthetic with. Uh, so, where's the turning point? How does it, how, where does the shift happen? Okay.
1: Um, in 1796, uh, Lewis writes The Monk or publishes The Monk. The Monk has all of those trappings right? All of the old gothic trappings. It's about this corrupt monk who sells his soul to Satan in medieval Spain. And there's all this horrible, you know, lurid nonsense that takes place. But he actually sells his soul. <laughs> Lucifer appears at the end. Um, it's it, it, it's this weird moment uh, where the... The Enlightenment trappings are still sort of, kind of there. That othering of Catholicism, that uh, sort of like let's let's take all of our cultural anxieties and push them down south, Mm -hmm. is right there. But by the end, it kind of sort of is literalized. Yeah, they they're talking about actual physical embodiments of evil. And when I say Lucifer makes an appearance at the end, Lucifer makes an appearance at the end. He comes <laughs> right. in the middle of this auto de fe and sort of steals this guy's soul. All right, so you, you have this weird moment where it's sort of like the bridge between um, the, the sort of 18th century anti-superstitious stance But the anti-superstitious trappings are used to illustrate this kind of superstitious story. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So things really sort of begin to shift in the 19th century. And writers in the period commonly called the Romantic Era felt that the Enlightenment thinkers had overemphasized an approach to existence based on the empirical. Okay. Yeah. So, in, in short, they found the Enlightenment claims to an absolute rationality short-sighted and insufficient for accounting for the wild variety of human experiences. So, if Candide's dictum at the end of Voltaire's novel, yes, but we must tend our garden, i.e., keep your head down, don't think too much, work and get paid, mm-hmm. is taken as a metonym for the Enlightenment view of the good life, then we can st- – kind of see that it can't quite account for a whole other range of experiences that make us human. Right? Yeah. Um, It's kind of like the data-driven life, which reduces all to nothing but numbers. Okay, it can allow you to do certain things, but it doesn't account for all of our experiences. All right, so that's romantics looking for other modes of experience or other modes of thinking. And here we find a reinvestment in exploring the supernatural and working the supernatural as supernatural into the landscape of Gothic literature. Hmm, So an interest in the supernatural really abounds in romantic literature, but it's typically not ghouls for the sake of ghouls. Rather, it serves to explore either a social, political, theological, or psychological topic. And the one I always love to turn to is Coleridge's Christabel. I think more people need to read this poem. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's a poem that we actually brought up on the cannonball before. Yeah. Yeah. Christabel is the tale of a young woman in medieval England. It's England, not Spain or Italy. Yeah, it was, it's wakes... still displaced in
0: time, but it's being brought back. I guess, you know, it was still Catholic back then. So it's still, you know, it, it's superstitious <laughs> enough, I suppose.
1: Yeah, it's superstitious enough. But um, she she wakes disturbed one night thinking of this nice young knight. Right, So she's woken up in the middle of her sleep with what appears to be a kind of erotic reverie uh so in her fluster she runs out to the woods to pray but who does she find but a young woman geraldine who claims she just escaped from some abductors christabel takes her back to the castle ignoring a bunch of eerie warnings that this woman isn't what she seems the two undress and lay down naked together and christabel sees something in geraldine that gets her even more flustered Mm -hmm. then the two sleep to wake the next morning with Cristobal growing steadily weaker and Geraldine gaining gaining strength, and so it's not a vampire story in Coleridge's, Coleridge's hands, but that's only because the eerie supernatural stuff that Coleridge works with hasn't yet been codified into the recognizable vampire mythos yet. Yeah, yeah, like so it's this kind of proto.
0: It would be—I mean, I don't know. It would be anachronistic even to call it proto vampirism, but this—he's—he's he's clearly tapping into the same kinds of threads that would later become, like you say,
1: codified into the blood-sucking undead yeah absolutely. And it's so weird how that happens. Okay, that really sort of happens with Sheridan Lefneu, who blatantly rips off Christabel and turns it <laughs> into uh, his story, Carmilla. I mean it it's it's almost like a shot for shot remake of of Christabel. Yeah. Carmilla is. Except it adds in this one minor detail of the 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 fangs and the scars in the neck and the actual blood drinking. Oh wow. And and then Bram Stoker takes Carmilla and just rips it off and turns it into um, dracula so if anything the the vampire genre is kind of a vampire in and of itself and that it keeps stealing from the past to sort of resuscitate the past it's it's the same imagined stuff over and over again uh sort of recycled um but it doesn't have really that much to do with actual I guess actual folklore on the ground—it's really sort of imaginatively invented by Coleridge. <laughs> All right, so um, we we have. In in Christabel, a, a story of a young woman's arousal finding outlet in a way that Coleridge's culture clearly di- disapproves of, right. which ultimately drains the woman of her vital light, life essence. Um, Coleridge is, is basically writing about a woman who is aroused, and yet the culture was so scared of women's arousal and what that would mean and... How that sort of thwarts patriarchal ambitions and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. it finds outlet in what to our eyes looks like a homoerotic relationship, which I think to our eyes is yeah okay whatever and yeah sure <laughs> to the nineteenth yeah why why not right and to the nineteenth century uh, that would have been threatening yeah right? yeah so. So Coleridge actually takes this and turns it into a meditation on evil. Yeah. All right. Um, Coleridge's aim with the story was to provide a counterpoint to Milton's Paradise Lost, which attempted to justify the ways of God to man, i.e. to examine evil and explain why evil exists. And Christabel is ultimate. And one more time, I want to reiterate: not my terms, mm-hmm. Coleridge's terms. Um, he clearly identifies um, homoeroticism with what he would have termed the unnatural or something evil. Right. Right. I don't. Some sort. Some sort Make of. Sure some sort of. Understands uh, that. Yeah. Some sort of uncanny otherness or whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, but it's it's an unfinished work. Uh, Coleridge was sort of famous for writing these unfinished works. Uh, it breaks off at a certain point in part two and there's an afterward where Coleridge suggests that the reason is because evil or whatever was evil to his mind is too enticing right um christabel's father's castle is still in mourning for her mother who died long long ago and as a result the castle and everyone in it exists in a kind of living death and the only exciting thing is the succubus geraldine and the only thing really animating the poem is the homoeroticism Mm -hmm. for coleridge represented evil Uh, It's almost as if he had an inkling that maybe eroticism was potentially an animating feature of existence and not necessarily something to be shunned as dreadful. Yeah, yeah. Um, So it's sort of like the – Harold Bloom actually wrote about this in uh, one of his early books like from the 50s or 60s on romanticism where you find in – christabel's father's castle it's it's a living death it's just this sort of exponential decay into this this deadening nothingness this deadening of the senses this deadening of experience it's just dead and geraldine is this kind of shocking of everything back to life with the erotic yeah um She's way much more interesting and way much more enticing than anything else in that castle. And how are you going to match that? Right? You yeah. can't. And that's sort of where, where Coleridge had to turn away. All right. So be that as it may, Christabel really introduces a lot of the motifs of the vampire myth. And it illustrates this shift in the Romantic era of taking the supernatural seriously as subject matter, if only to explore other psychological dimensions. Right. And to, to sort of bring this home in a way that I, I think people are probably much – or listeners are probably much more familiar with. Um, yeah, probably two listeners out there, if that, have read <laughs> Christabel. Um, but everyone's read Little Red Riding Hood. Oh, yeah, Um, yeah. The Brothers Grimm sort of was this attempt to go out and, I guess, cultivate this kind of folk wisdom and find in the supernatural or in these folk tales that deal with the uncanny or the sort of transmundane, as I think you put it once, Yeah, yeah. um, some kind of truth. That runs counter to the Enlightenment, to basic empirical understanding. Um, but there's something else that I want to throw in there. Is uh, one of the things that you also have in this period, right in in the 19th century, uh, typically later 19th century is the rise of uh, industrialization. Like, the Industrial Revolution has already kicked in, in in England, and the shifts in printing actually make a lot more lurid material available to the public. Yeah. Yeah. So you get the rise of the Penny Dreadful, and Penny Dreadfuls—that's pretty much an apt name. They're really gross <laughs> right. and grotesque, and it's right. Divided. It's
0: all—it's all spectacle, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, but it's sort of like it, it's spectacle in the same way that, like, a Lifetime movie is spectacle. Um, they trade in sort of cheap sentimentality, uh, lurid. Grotesque details, and then cheap—I guess—moralization by the end. Sure, right. Um, but it, it's a, a, a sort of marker of, and and they're often um, they're they're very exploitative, and they're often sort of cynically written. Uh, the king of them. <laughs> Was that Growl and Poe? Uh, Poe wasn't necessarily the dark, grim, gruesome, oh, I'm the creepy outsider. That definitely <laughs> was the look that he cultivated. Yeah. But a lot of the the lurid stuff he wrote was sort of um, cheap sensationalism to get readership. It yeah. It was clickbait. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I guess, uh, honestly, what I, what I was, you know, the way you've been explaining how the Gothic developed, you know, over the course of the Romantic period, I immediately thought of the fall of the House of Usher. Um, yeah. Just as, uh, well, which I guess, I don't know if that falls within the Gothic, you know, proper or whatever, but like, it it, it it hits all these hallmarks we've been talking about, as well as kind of, I guess, playing it, playing it a little like, uh, what's the word? giving a light touch to the supernatural stuff, um, yeah, which is well, certainly there. Well, and it's absolutely like the, – the story doesn't make any sense unless we assume the supernatural is at work. But it is not sort of highlighted necessarily.
1: Well, d- the American Gothic is weird. I mean d- we're digressing all over the place, so let's just jump <laughs> into it. The American Gothic <laughs> is weird and the Southern Gothic is even weirder. Uh, both tend to have this anxiety, or or express this kind of cultural anxiety about the persistence of the errors of the past into the present. Yeah, I mean that that's kind of what Dracula does, and we'll get to Dracula in a second. But um, look at uh, all of Nathaniel Hawthorne. Uh, Hawthorne is sort of obsessed by this national guilt, or or I guess this regional guilt over, you know, the the Puritan hypocrisy and the witch trials and Hawthorne's own family interaction with that, Uh, one of his ancestors was really one of the worst possible judges that you could have in the Salem witch trials, just a a horrible bastard of a human being. Um, and, And Hawthorne wanted to take that on as this kind of original sin in the nation. Right, the the, the yeah. national outlook in the 19th century, or the American national outlook in the 19th century, was this kind of um, cheerful, can-do, uh, basically sort of like that 1980s.
0: You know, yeah, the whole the whole morning in America malarkey.
1: Yeah, that that's kind of it. Um, Hawthorne wanted to explore this other kind of psychological darkness that was lurking back there that he thought was part and parcel with yeah, uh, all yeah. this other stuff. Uh, it's the persistence of the past into the present. And then look at Edgar Allan Poe, and we can't forget that Poe was a Southern writer. Yeah, yeah. He was uh, in uh, Baltimore. He was a, He was a Southerner raised in richmond oh wow okay yeah, um, yeah, yeah even yeah yeah so there's a lot in poe where if you go looking for it there's this weird kind of aristocratic or even master-slave relationship mm. yeah. and you find the persistence of weird aristocratic trappings into the present and that persistence is damning uh, House of Usher is a perfect case where it's sort of like a mockery of aristocratic pretense. And what is America but a place where we threw off aristocracy only to establish aristocratic oligarchies in the South? Right. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, there was – um, I, I again, I a sort of slight digression, but I just – I cannot – this is going to kill me that I cannot remember the the name of it now. But I actually just recently read a, uh, a book by a scholar – on the topic of the um, the survival of feudal labor relationships specifically, but feudal property and labor relationships into what we call little L liberalism in the United States of America. Uh, so I, th- I think so that, that's, that's astonishing to me that there was this, we have these connections in the literature of the time. And also like, I just read this extremely dry, but very well argued <laughs> <you> know, history <laughs> book about it
1: well then okay you can take it to the 20th century and you've got someone like faulkner who is trafficking in the persistence of the past into the present as horror i mean yeah like yeah rose for emily i i'm i'm just touching on rose for emily because it's the easiest one to address in however long we've got for this but rose for emily is all about this kind of vampiric ghost who won't go away yeah uh i uh cannibalistic necrophiliac possessing ghost who nobody can get rid of yeah and the attitude of the place towards that ghost is complicated yeah um, it's it's all about the changes that are taking place that Emily Gerson will not allow for yeah. herself or for those around her um <clears throat> So in, in America, it, it's often got this kind of like political valence. Yeah. So I, I, I wanted to bring up the Penny Dreadfuls uh, because they're a marker of industrialization. Yeah, and yeah, They're cheap throwaways. Right. But I also wanted to bring them up because they're anticipated by this guy who I, I think more people should read him, um, De Quincey. Uh, he did this book called Confessions of an English Opium Eater. Oh, um, OK. I've, I've heard of that. But I, yeah, I I don't I don't
0: know what
1: you but I've heard of it. Yeah, Thomas De Quincey. He 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 was kind of a uh, one of those child prodigies. Poor kid went to um, this phenomenal boarding school. Uh, was too smart for it. Uh, either got kicked out or left. Uh, basically hitchhiked to London and then just squatted. Yeah. Um. And and wrote these fantastic memoirs just about like these weird situations that he would get in but he along with many others got accidentally addicted to opium um there was a a very similar phenomenon in the 19th century like late 18th early 19th century very similar phenomenon to the opioid addiction today Uh, opium was being prescribed for everything as a kind of cure-all and at one point, it was cheaper for him to, as, as far as I understand it, or as far as I believe the biographers think it goes, uh, it was cheaper for him to get opium than to buy food. And that could, like, quell the stomach pains. And he got hooked. And he was this really fascinating thinker and fascinating writer. And he garnered this reputation. And he published his memoirs and they're fascinating for his self-analysis. Yeah, Like what he can do is analyze his own nightmares in this really fascinating, weird, creepy way. And um, he had a taste for the Gothic. He wrote this essay uh, called The Knocking at the Gates of Macbeth where he analyzes the Porter scene as necessary for Macbeth because he says the comedy is there to exacerbate the horror.
0: Uh, I you know what I need to read this essay because I feel the same way because man it just boy does the comedy fall flat to me in that scene
1: well it's he says it's there to break up the horror because if you go from hideous thing to hideous thing Uh, it's, it's too much, but what it does is sort of like breaks in with this weird thing. That's just morbid and strange. He did an essay called Murder Considered as One of the Fine Arts, Mm -hmm. where it's this, uh, imagined club of murderers talking about their, um, I guess, aesthetic murders. I mean, it completely anticipates, uh, Hannibal Lecter. Right, murder as aesthetics, uh, which is kind of like taking aestheticism to its furthest end. And then, um, but he he did this other thing, which which I think is uh, connected to how we might think of the rise of the Gothic, and the rise of the lurid in the popular <laughs> imagination. All right, so De Quincey, uh, he he was recognized as a fantastic writer, um, <clears throat> and he he made friends with Corridge and Wordsworth, who saw in him you know something of a kindred spirit, but also you know this. This dude that they wanted to nurture and, you know, get him on his feet so that he could maybe kick the addiction a little bit and, and actually do some writing. So they took him up to the lake country and set him up with an easy job. In the hopes that he would, you know, kick back, relax a little bit, wean himself off of opium, and not have to worry too much so that he could get his health back and become, you know, a brilliant genius writer. Okay. His easy job was running the local newspaper. Yeah. Okay. So it's just like whatever local rag. It was so boring. (laughs) And he got so tired of it, and he had the hardest time kicking opium because it was so boring. Like there was nothing to do in the light Country. Yeah. So he's he's out there sweating it out. He's bored out of his mind. He doesn't have anything to do. Um, he has no interest whatsoever in um, writing about the the sort of farmers' problems in the local rag. He's got pages to fill, and he has no connections up there, and he can't get any writers going. So what he does is is starts basically just making clippings of the the london crime sheets
0: like Hmm, all
1: the just the police blotter like making clippings of that and printing it in the back of this you know local rag um subscriptions go through the roof everyone wants to read the the horrid horrid horror (laughs) tales yeah oh man So I mean, so he really, so this is like the he was the first true crime podcaster, more or less, yeah. And and it was all because um, he didn't he didn't want to kick opium. Um, There's this perfect, (laughs) perfect. Okay, so anyway, there's this other thing uh, that's sort of taking place in the late 18th, early 19th century, which is Orientalism. Um, there, there's a text that I, I know of and don't really know, but it's Vatek, but written by William Beckford. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of this Orientalist tale about this sultan who has magic and goes off throughout the Middle East doing all kinds of weird Gothic stuff. Um, it's that basic othering. Yeah. Right? But it, it, it's kind of an extension of that. We'll take all of this magic stuff... And displace it into another place in time, right? But in this case, it's displacing it into what are essentially the British colonies. Yeah, yeah. And Byron really exploits Orientalism as a sort of Gothic trapping. Throughout his whole career. So you've got all of these different strands kind of coming into it in the 19th century, um, partially playing on that Enlightenment colonialist othering aspect, partially playing on this interest in the supernatural as what's going on in our backyard that is in opposition to the Enlightenment or what is a kind of truth that is non-empirical. And these all get sort of woven together and that's where you get something like Dracula.
0: I was gonna say, yeah, this also especially like the, the Orientalism and and things like that's I, that's absolutely where Dracula's at um, which is also this kind of this bridge from we've already mentioned some of the 20th century gothic but I think Dracula
1: bridges this 19th century to the 20th century gothic uh, yeah 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 I, and I I'm I don't mean to overlook Frankenstein uh, Frankenstein is one of the most important novels of that time period and Mm -hmm. i would argue that it's one of the most important novels to come out of the english tradition oh without a doubt Um, yeah it's 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 weird because the shelley's weren't the anti-scientific couple that you might think of when you think uh romantic yeah
0: For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST.
1: In really exploring the ways that the scientific discourse of her day And of the Enlightenment, and of our own day. I mean, she sort of anticipates the critiques of the twentieth and twenty-first century. Yeah, yeah. The way that scientific discourse is often, often, sort of conceiving of itself as a mastery over time and space. Yeah, and she puts that completely in patriarchal terms. I mean. In Frankenstein, the way that Victor thinks about nature, it's always personified as feminine, and he wants to master the feminine and, in some really creepy language, intrude into nature and rip it apart and rip it open and see how it works. It's really grotesque. Yeah, yeah. Um so there's this anti-enlightenment critique going all throughout Frankenstein it's extraordinarily important and the the sort of psychological aspects of Frankenstein really anticipates um a lot of that Victorian stuff mm-hmm. the most of Frankenstein isn't going through the charnel house and doing all that sort of stuff it's the anxiety that this thing that you did that you've tried to um i i guess cordon off yeah. keeps coming back in some way shape or form it's, right it's, it's closer to jekyll and hyde
0: yeah it's the dread yeah it's that's that's absolutely it yeah i mean we can yeah. honestly we can save uh, we're, we're probably going to need to dedicate an episode to frankenstein on down the line and i uh, just as an oh, aside absolutely I think it is quite interesting that we're talking about the Gothic tradition, and two novels have come up that, in, in my reading on the science fiction genre, have been sort of pinpointed by uh, the respective scholars as the origin of the science fiction tradition. Um, yeah. Uh, Brian Aldous places it at Frankenstein. Alexi Panshin places it at the Castle at Otranto. Um, okay. so this is very, this is kind of interesting to me as a, as a science fiction genre head that like clearly the sort of the, the kissing cousins, Nate, you know, relationship of these, these kinds of genres, you know, coming clear. Um,
1: uh, oh yeah. I mean like in, in the 19th century, the, the thing that I guess I'm trying to point out here is that, okay, science fiction, uh, horror, the detective novel, yeah, yeah. um, the, the sort of gothic romance, uh, the Penny Dreadful All of the, the the Orientalist Tendencies All of this is sort of Mixed up together I, I mean it, it's sort of like Part and parcel with each other and, and it doesn't sort of really get separated out Until you move later on down the line Right, right When there's this kind of uh, Intense focus on classification And breaking it down into What is what and how what operates According to what But it, it's it's all intertwined Yeah, Um, it's it's difficult to separate these strands. I mean, so much of the Sherlock Holmes stories and the early you know stories of detection are are orientalist stories. Like, Mm -hmm. okay, I want to make sure everybody understands how I'm using that. That's a, a literary term, sort of developed most closely by Edward Said to look at the ways that Western cultures or European cultures, um, particularly colonizing cultures, look at the colonized as other in this exotic way. Right, And so much of the Sherlock Holmes stories or early detection stories are about something exotic out there coming back and causing either criminal mischief or supernatural mischief mm-hmm. in the the colonizing nation mm-hmm. um it, it's it's, <laughs> there's, there's it's a, all there's a, connected together that's right and there's a lot of there's a lot of threads to pluck at which is uh i this is this is
0: one of, i think this is one of those shows that we do where we realize like we have so much more to say about everything than
1: this <laughs> <laughs> to the topic well, but, but, but okay Oh, sorry. That go ahead. brings us back. That brings us back to Dracula. Which yeah, yeah. the The plot of Dracula is exactly the plot of Heart of Darkness. Yeah. Um, civilized, quote unquote, civilized white European goes out there. Something happens out there. He comes back and brings out there with him. Back with him, right? He threatens right. to destroy civilization. Um. But Dracula is as far as we're talking about the Gothic novel, it's weird because it breaks all the rules. Um, if the Gothic began as an attempt to embrace reason and realism and dispel superstition, um, Dracula is that Dracula is the antithesis of that impulse yeah,
0: it's the complete uh, inversion of this the sort of the origin of the Gothic aesthetic.
1: Yeah, Dracula is all about how science and technology are no match for the dark supernatural evil that lurks in the shadows of the European past to come back and plague the future. So, so much of Dracula is about the way science and progress fail when confronted with the quote-unquote hidden wisdom of folk culture. The heroes in the novel have access to all kinds of newfangled gizmos and gadgets. Mm -hmm. They're on the cutting edge of technology. Seward records his diary entries on wax cylinder. Quincy Morris uses the most up-to-date repeater rifles. Uh, So much of the transportation takes place by train. Right? Which is archaic now, but that was cutting edge at the time. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it's actually technolo- technology and political advancement that brings Dracula to London. Um, Harker uses the trains to actually get to Transylvania and the count is only allowed to own land in London due to the relatively recent land reform acts of the Victorian age that allowed foreigners to own land in Britain. <laughs> I'm
0: i you so, describe that I'm astonished that like the Dracula story has not become a big canard for the Brexit types. <laughs> yeah, <I> mean, <laughs> like can you we let
1: Romanians into England and look at that they're draining our versions of blood. Well, there's there's actually um Oh shoot! Uh, the 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 name of it is escaping me. There there was a Catalan author mm-hmm. who did this vampire story about these Enlightenments, um, or these later sort of vampire hunters who have to hunt this vampire who is sort of representative of that kind of repressive fascist past. Yes. Uh, oh yeah, there, yeah, there's this way that the the vampire keeps. Um, Keeps recurring as this thing that it, 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 it's like, um, like what we were just talking about with Poe and Faulkner, it's the past that, that sort of returns to haunt you. But yeah, in, in Dracula, it's the past that returns to haunt you because the present has gotten too progressive. Yeah. Um, so, the, in, in the face of what we're meant to believe is pure evil, the heroes have to revert to folk superstition to thwart the vampire. Right. So, guided by Van Helsing, Holmwood, Seward, Morris, and Harker go so far as to brandish crosses as a form of defense – there's a subtle embrace of Catholicism within that gesture, as it suggests a return to the iconography of a pre-Protestant mode of belief.
0: Hmm,
1: yeah. Right? So so they have to go back to superstition. So, in effect, Dracula takes the Enlightenment ideals of the early Gothic and subverts them. Yeah. So it kind of comes full circle. Um, and that kind of sets Dracula, the
0: stage yeah. for the kind of the Gothic aesthetic as, as we know it. And I know we have to skip over a lot, but I was really interested yeah, in your yeah. biographical element about – uh, having been sort of there in the incipient goth movement, because as we understand, like the goth aesthetic today is very much imbued with otherworldliness, with uh, the supernatural, with spookiness in general, and so it's kind of yeah that kind of flipped on its head thing of like you know the you know, Scooby Doo is the least goth thing imaginable, right? Because it's 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 right, it's, it's right. eliminating the 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 uncanny, it's taking it away. Um, so it's yes. kind of fascinating. There was this, there was this reversal. But sort of, what what do you think led to that kind of the emergence of a a goth aesthetic in sort of American popular culture that that you happen to be a, a part of?
1: Uh, repetition. Um, the no, no, no. I, 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 okay, I'm not being glib here. Um, okay, by the 1890s, it, it was over and done with, or, or by the early 1900s, it was kind of over and done with. Mm-hmm. You find remnants of it in um, <clears throat> in modernism. But Henry James has all these great short stories that are sort of gothic aestheticist mysteries. Um, If anybody's interested, the the way I kind of began to intellectualize this was in undergrad. One of my my undergrad professors was actually a a scholar of the gothic. And um, if you're interested at all, look up the dude. uh, John Paul Raquelme, R-I-Q-U-E-L-M-E. Um, really fascinating dude who has this kind of like running large-scale theory that aestheticism and the Gothic are kind of like two sides of the same coin hmm. by the time you get to the the 19th century because um, aestheticism represents this anti-social tendency in England, right um, In the Victorian era the the whole impulse is towards, Um, curtailing the personal for the sake of the social. Yeah. And what is pleasure if not antisocial? So you get something like Dorian Gray, which is kind of like this weird quintessential gothic novel that um, is absolutely antisocial, but it's hard to call Dorian evil at certain points. Sure, sure. sure. Okay. So anyway, um, Henry James... (laughs) In between, Henry James wrote a a bunch of complicated novels early on. Uh, They didn't sell. He was frustrated and annoyed and wrote these kind of bizarre stories, which are and are not like his later novels. Mm -hmm. But they're these weird gothic aestheticist mysteries. And already, the gothic in James is kind of like a laughable stereotype. Um, It's something that's sort of like... Like what we would mock in the cough kids today, I guess, or sort of you know uh pray to, but um the it, it's sort of like this is useless, this is silly, this is over affected, yeah, right. Um, but you find remnants of the gothic in modernism. Eliot rips off the brides of Dracula in the wasteland. It's one whole section of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you find these sort of gothic tinges with the bats and vampirism all throughout James Joyce. Um, it keeps pinging here and there and then sort of falls to the wayside. The way I think, uh, it sort of reemerged in the 80s was as the failure of the hippies. Okay. Uh, the failure yeah. of the counterculture um you know the the way the counterculture was sort of interpreted or well, it was anticipated and interpreted, yeah uh look at something like Zabrisky point, which interprets the counterculture as basically nihilistic uh hedonistic apocalyptic craziness yeah right and then. Whatever the actual counterculture was, Manson became the poster boy for what it would be. Yeah. Right? Um, the Manson murders basically sort of fulfilled the prophecy that the culture – like, they, they fulfilled the cultural anxiety.
0: Yeah, right? yeah. It, it, was, it, was, it was almost uh, – not to get too conspiratorial, but
1: it was almost too perfect as a, as yeah. a mode
0: to discredit the counterculture
1: yeah i I mean exactly and so there's this way in which the gothic emerges as the trappings of that counterculture but recognizing that it's doomed to failure so instead of um instead of do your own thing we're out there it's sort of a counterculture that embraces the outsider status yeah But that embrace of outsider status undoes whatever revolutionary gestures were there in the first place.
0: Yeah. Like it's not so much a matter of embracing the outsider status to overturn anything. It's embracing the outsider status to remain outside.
1: Yeah. Where – which is where you get something like Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. nightmare okay let's sorry. This is <laughs> probably probably me the chintziest
0: most commercial <laughs> appropriation of cop aesthetic but 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 no well, you're onto something take me there
1: okay so <laughs> all right let me take you back to when i was three um i i had a couple of favorite books that i would get from the library all the time um one was Mike Mulligan and his Steam Shovel because mm-hmm. that was just really cool. Yeah, it's awesome. Tractors and, and the art's great. Boys love tractors. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other were all those orange-backed Universal Monster books. Um, I don't know if you know those. Somebody who's listening know the knows those. Oh no the no no no, no no! I know exactly what you mean. It was like they had like orange and black covers, right? Yeah, there were these orange ones yeah. and yeah, black oh my white. god, I loved those. Those those were kind of what I lived on. Yeah, as I was a scared kid, and I was growing up in the Satanic Panic of the oh, yeah 90s yeah in the '90s, where you know kids were emerging on milk cartons, and everyone. Who you saw was going to abduct you and take you away and everything like that. And so, um, I guess I just grew up anxious. But the, the, you know, I loved those monster things. I loved that. And it it was sort of like the, the, the other two. You know, everyone telling me that everything was going to be okay at the same time as right. um, when I was four years old. My next door neighbor told me about how we were all going to die in a nuclear holocaust uh, perpetrated by the Soviet Union, but that was okay because they were atheists and going to hell, and we were like Christians who were going to heaven. <laughs> so it was a really were, jokes
0: on you, commies. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. So there were all kinds of like weird pressures and stuff like that um, going on at the time that I can kind of analyze because I, I I sort of lived through them, right. Um the 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 whole sort of goth move, it before it was really clearly articulated, and you have to remember that I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Virginia. Yeah. Uh, I remember, you know, my sister is five years older than me, and when she got her license, she would uh, just kind of as a kick take me along with her on whatever like weird stuff and she was getting to know all the art kids in high school and they were kind of like the weirdos and the outsiders before that had sort of like reified into an image yeah yeah and somebody had slipped her the idea of burton's nightmare before christmas and she took me to see it like when it came out And for this kid who was, you know, I guess I must have been like sixth or seventh grade, it it clicked in this way. This was the easy antithesis of everything that the culture was mostly promoting. Yeah, you know, Um, it hit home for a sixth or seventh grader now i can see it as the easy antithesis of whatever the the culture was promoting and this kind of um commodification and commercialization of that yeah yeah right but, but I, I guess the,
0: you're on right. I, I should have, i should have recalled the uh the, there was a time before i i had all this you know the the weight of context behind me and i could i could as yeah a, I, I could see things as art itself presented to me rather than as you know Anyway, that's a whole other conversation.
1: Nightmare Before, Nightmare Before Christmas is one of the most conservative movies out there because what does it actually say? It undoes all of the revolutionary aspects it does. of the counterculture by emphasizing, okay, stay in your lane. Right. Everyone go back Don't into your boxes. To mix with everyone else. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at the same time, you have this weird kind of '90s. All right, you, you get that '90s exploration of sexuality with Dracula reinterpreted. The Bram Stoker's Dracula it runs absolutely on a Foucauldian trip. Like it's it. It is Bram Stoker, either he or his screenwriter, reinterpreted Dracula along Foucauldian lines. I mean, yeah. beat by beat. Oh, you mean uh, um, Coppola. And or a screen Yeah, man. Bram Stoker was long yeah. dead, of course. I'm sorry, not Bram Stoker. Uh, Coppola. <laughs> Coppola. Duh. Yeah. Sorry, it's late at night. Uh, and then, and that was anticipated by Anne Rice, who kind of sort of did it before um, Coppola did. Uh, you have this weird internalization. You you have this moment. At, at least in America, you have this moment of okay, no external threat. Let's start looking inward. And you have something like the X Files, which is about that inward turn. What is happening in our backyard? Yeah, you know. Yeah, um, and it's it's not always bad or scary. I mean, X Files, I think at its best, had a kind of exploratory attitude toward. Well, it had a,
0: There are a lot of episodes that have a very affectionate attitude toward yeah. whatever monster is at work. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And of course, and and you, and you, don't, like, and
0: you don't watch a show like X-Files unless you feel a certain affection for the gray aliens or something like, you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and then you have something like the Blair Witch Project, which looks in the backyard. Um, it, that's one of the things they keep saying in the film. This is America. Nobody gets lost in America. Yeah. But it's it's all about being lost in America and what's back there. I mean, it's it's Hawthorne. Yeah. To rights. Yeah, yeah. Um, by the early aughts, you have the anti-authority aspects of gothicism sort of rearing their heads. They've been corporatized mm-hmm. and incorporated and co-opted, but it's that co-opted anti-authority. Yeah. So you have the rise in Ghost Hunter shit. Right, right. And – this kind of belief in demon possession and exorcism uh the exorcism exorcism of Emily Rose uh you know the the exorcist was that that horror movie which was basically anti-empirical from the get-go right like which is all about how the sciences cannot handle this ancient evil it's kind of like dracula all over again um it, Exorcism oh, of Emily Rose and, uh, is that point of contact that just reinstates that.
0: Yeah. Real quick, fun aside about uh, the exorcist the uh, yeah. the the name that the uh, author of the novel selected to to be like the ancient evil demon or whatever Pazuzu. Um, yeah. Was uh, I, I learned recently was in the Akkadian in the, in the Mesopotamian and Assyrian tradition was a guardian spirit to protect mothers and childbirth. Uh, it was actually it was actually <laughs> well, a very that? good spirit that you wanted in your house when things were going down anyway just like a fun aside
1: (laughs) uh corporatist authoritarian uh misogynist tropes Uh, who knows or
0: maybe just you know pulling some uh sufficiently semitic sounding weird name out of a hat you know
1: right well so in the 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 early aughts you have that sort of anti-authoritarian but totally authoritarian, anti-authoritarian. No, oh, yeah. Um, in the late aughts, you basically have the domesticated Gothic. You have things like True Blood, Twilight, and Fifty Shades of Grey, which I want to argue are all about a money fantasy. Yeah, um, it's a fetishization about endless wealth and power. I mean, that that's sort of like what what happens in in all of those things. Um, you know, I I could. <sighs> I I hate to say it, but I I can see the rise of Trump coming from a mile away with the rise of Fifty Shades of Grey, which is not about a kink at all. Fifty Shades of Grey and Twilight because, you know, they're kind of the same thing. Right, right. Yeah, the Fifty Shades of Grey is
0: literally a a fan fiction of Twilight with Control-F to change the names.
1: Yeah. Um, But it's all money fantasy. Yeah. It's all money and power. Uh, but what you start seeing now, or more recently, I think, um, and and one more time, this is skimming the surfaces and th- this is us riffing at the end to, try oh, to sure. sort of bring it to a close. <laughs> um, I, I, I I I'm talking broadly about horror in the gothic. What you've been seeing in the past, like. Five ten years or so is the gothic or the horror as a place to explore trauma either hmm, um, yeah. personal trauma interpersonal trauma political trauma social trauma or or however you want to define it i'm thinking of hereditary the witch and babadook oh or uh, or get really out um or get out yeah, yeah. get out yeah. is another great one um uh it follows yeah 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 Uh, so much uh horror and gothic material now um it's using those trappings to really sort of explore trauma uh what it means to be in pain what it means to hurt what it means to fight back under those circumstances yeah um Uh, The Witch is one of those things which I think is absolutely a feminist film about um, – I think that is the antithesis to something like The Craft or Nightmare Before Christmas where it's not about staying in your lane. It's not about the reification of the old tropes. It's about, yeah, tear the patriarchal order down and just burn it. Yeah, um, it's kind of amazing how it does that. But anyway, um, so I that 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 sort of brings it, I guess, away from the history of the Gothic per se, and into this kind of cultural production of horror mm-hmm. uh, in a very sort of facile, uh, brief <laughs> skimming the surface way. And I want to make sure everybody knows that I'm not this dumb. Um, I'm not usually, this facile, but those are some ways that you can begin to think about conceptualizing yeah. the Gothic in in the 21st century.
0: Yeah, and and um, I think um, I think as always the something I've always cautioned uh, everyone who uh, whoever listens to any podcast whatsoever, and especially anyone that I have anything to do with, because I am definitely half assed. <laughs> if any of this sounds interesting, please understand that you are getting like a scintilla of the actual interesting content to be had out of something so if any of this sounds interesting or something you want to dig into i urge you to please go dig into it to actually find out cool stuff about it
1: yeah so that's that's our our i mean i feel like this isn't even 101 this is like 099 (laughs) uh, remedial session that's right that's Uh, right these are some some I, i suppose touchstones that you can hit on Uh, historically, to begin to see the present in the past or the past in the present. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And I I think that's what's sort of useful about thinking about the Gothic. Historically, Is so much of this stuff is still with us, and it's got uh, roots really far down there. Um, It's not just uh, whatever uh, dark distortion pedal band that you're listening to at the moment it, it goes back a long ways and in a lot of ways it's been replicating itself with very little variation yeah yeah for about 200 years now which which is
0: fascinating to think the, the durability of so many of the kind of the hallmarks and tropes um it certainly has to be it has to be speaking to something enduring i guess at least something enduring in industrialized society you know where where this and i guess science fiction is kind of a similar you know all these you know horror you know all these sort of kissing cousins genres i i'm i'm developing in my mind a um i'm sure actual literary critics have have developed this and i'll have to look into it but like the the fact that this all came around during the inception of the the kind of mass industrialized society that great britain and western europe then exported to the rest of the world that has to mean something, um, but I guess at the at the end of the day, though, I, Claude, thank you for answering my question about how <laughs> how, how this term came around. Did. If you did, and and you know what, what's even better than answering a question is raising a thousand more, and that's something <laughs> that we are all we are both very good at. And um, uh, I, I guess we can we can we can wrap it up for now. But uh, thanks you for a wonderful agoraphobia. Uh, take on the gothic a survey of the gothic where it comes from where it's going and um, i i don't know i'm gonna go i'm gonna go search for some uh some cool go- goth rock uh, live video from the 80s man
1: all right man uh if i can uh just put in one thing yeah and a great overlooked just art punk expressionist creepy band from new york in the early 80s live skull live skull uh, the name says it all yeah all but, right sweet um somewhere between joy division and early sonic youth i uh, if you're looking for gothic i think that's up here good god dude i am a thousand
0: percent there that is incredible all right man well right. uh and on that note agoraphobia out <laughs> agoraphobia out please listen to the cannonball if you've enjoyed this episode of agoraphobia i'm daniel and uh with me as always has been claude and uh we'll catch you guys later